Um, so what I want to do is work through this um, piece by piece. Is that okay? Uh, rather than rush through it, uh, let's sort of work, uh, work through it bit by bit because there are some exciting and important ideas, I think, to explore here. Um, but let, let's, uh, let's review a little from last week. John, the eighth chapter, Jesus makes this remarkable, wonderful, simple, and powerful statement in verses 31 and 32 of John chapter 8. I'm going to be reading from the um, New American Standard. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, if you continue in my word, my phone, sorry. If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, or you're taught of me. And you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. That's exciting, isn't it? A few verses later, we read that he who the Son sets free is free indeed. So this is perfect liberty. It's real freedom. Um, and a, a freedom which begins internally and then finally expresses itself in and through our lives. It's a rather simple path, though. Continue in my word. Then you're taught of me. And you'll know the truth. So in reading the word, we are going to have an encounter with Jesus. We're going to have an encounter with the truth. And of course, he explained to his disciples that he was, is, the way, the truth, and the life. So truth is more than a philosophical notion. Jesus is the personification of truth. He is truth. And by spending time in this book, spending time exposing ourselves to Jesus' sayings in the Gospels, to uh, His words conveyed to us through the Holy Spirit as He moved upon men of old, we have the Scriptures, we can, we can learn of Him. We can be taught of Him. And while we're being taught of Him, we are, we are going to um, become transformed through the, our exposure to the truth and the power that's inherent in the truth. It's more than just ideas. Remember, when Jesus spoke, things happened. When He spoke, the winds and the sea obeyed him. When he spoke, demons fled. When he spoke, death yielded to him. People were returned to life. When he spoke, wonderful miracles of healing occurred. When he spoke, he was able to multiply fish and loaves. When Jesus spoke, ideas were communicated. But along with those ideas, power was released into the lives and situations of those who heard that truth and agreed with it. This 
book is unlike any other piece of literature that exists in the earth. And there are some wonderful books. Just, it's extraordinary. Uh, I, to my wife's chagrin, I think I really have a thing for books. Um, they're all over the house. In my study, there are thousands on the wall. There are hundreds scattered around the house. And I go to book sales constantly and to the Friends of the Library sale. If you've never been there, you should put that on your calendar. It's twice a year. I come in with a haul. Uh, it's my younger son's uh, and, and my tradition to go there early Saturday mornings and wait in line and then go in. And I come back with uh, quite a haul. And my wife says, uh, where are you going to put those? <laughs> <laughs> but there is no other piece of literature like the Word of God. Jesus said in John 6, 63, My words are spirit, and they are life. No other piece of literature can make that claim. Paul wrote of the Word of God in Romans 1, 16. He said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation, the dunamis. It's the miracle-working power of God unto salvation. This is an extraordinary book. And, and as you and I devote time to it, we allow it to transform our thinking and, and our perspectives. And we allow the power that's inherent in it to, to uh, find its way into our heart our lives begin to undergo dramatic change. I've seen people with um, real addictions. And some of them were obvious. Some of them not so obvious. Um, but, you know, they made them known. And they expressed a yearning to be free from them. And yet, over the years, uh, these addictions did not yield to their very best efforts to shed them. But as they spent time in the Word of God, devoted themselves to exposing themselves to truth and to the power that's resident in it, their lives were transformed. I saw my first pastorate in Boston. We, I actually, uh, the, the church also had a, um, a substance abuse recovery program. And so we would work with uh, people from their teens into their 60s and 70s with any number of addictions. Uh, the obvious ones were drugs and alcohol, but there was gambling and sexual addictions. And I remember just watching... Uh, men and women come through that door uh, where those meetings were held. And you could see the um, fear that was just etched uh, onto their faces. They, were, they, were, they wanted desperately to be free, so they were willing to give this a try. But you could see that they were so fearful that this was simply going to be another um, fruitless effort to um, shake this addiction. And we simply ministered truth. And after several weeks, you could see this anxiety beginning to lift and this confidence in its place. That was um, 
Wow. That was like 35 years ago. <laughs> I used to have this little game where I would say, well, I'm, let's see, 20 years ago I was, uh, 20 years ago I was 25. 20 years I'll be 65. And then one day I thought, let's see, 15, year, 15 years ago I was 40. In 15 years I'll be 70. It, what? <laughs> I stopped playing that game abruptly. I've never returned to it. <laughs> that was 35 years ago. I still communicate with men and women who went through that. And to this day are free. Enjoying, fruitful, really enjoyable lives. Um, you... you Consider um, Paul's counsel in uh, Colossians, the third chapter. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. Why? Because your life is hid with God in Christ. We, we practice the inverse of that far too much, though, don't we? Our mind is typically occupied with things earthly rather than things heavenly. Now, what does it mean to set your mind on things above? Does it mean to think about angels and, and uh, ponder what heaven might look like? No. Remember, according to Ephesians, our lives are hid with God in Christ, and we've been raised up with Christ and seated with him in heavenly places. It's suggesting to us that you and I need to be considering a reality that stretches far beyond uh, what is apparent to our senses. Reality, this is where we were, we were addressing this week before last. Reality exists well beyond what our senses can confirm. Now many people live as if that's not so. Their perspectives are decidedly earthbound. And so their lives are regularly hemmed in by impossibility. Jesus said, however, that all things are possible to him that believeth. Now, what does it mean, him that believeth? It means for the person whose perspectives have been carefully shaped by the word of God, they are able to look at a circumstance that others might uh, observe along with them and see only uh, dread, see only impossibility. They look at the same set of circumstances, but they are not bound uh, by an earthbound perspective. They're not constrained by that. They're viewing that situation instead from God's perspective. And so where others see impossibility, they see possibility. They see what could happen if God's power were unleashed in that situation. I want to look at life like that, don't you? Certainly for my own, uh, my own life. Now, there are things uh, that uh, I, I wish to continue to grow in. I mean, um, have, have, are you ever disappointed when the worst version of yourself shows up? 
But you think, I, I really could have handled that better while you're cleaning up the blood. No, I'm just kidding. You think, I, I really could have handled that better. Um, I should have handled that better. And, and it's not just disappointment with yourself. I mean, at some point we, we, we arrive at that moment when it's not about us. We realize, you know, by saying that, by saying that the way I said it, I cause real pain. I've hurt that person. And it may just seem a slight, but uh, we have an opportunity to make a difference, to help move people beyond their pain, and to discover wholeness. But there are times, I'll speak for myself, when I have failed miserably at that. I may have only confirmed their worst suspicions about themselves rather than oppose, help them oppose those lies and embrace what God says about them. I, I don't want to do that. So I want to continue to undergo change in my life. But I live in a world of extraordinary need and I want to be a resource for those in need that God brings across my path. And if I'm going to be that resource, then I need to be able... Is anyone else cold in here? I'm, pre I'm actually about to start shivering. I think. Um, um, if I can look at their circumstance from God's perspective, then I may be a resource for God at that moment to pray in such a manner that his life and power can invade that circumstance and refashion it with a miracle. So it's imperative, if that's going to happen, if it's, then it's imperative that I really take this counsel that Jesus has offered us here very seriously. I need to continue in his word so that I can be taught by him. There are lots of teachers in this life, aren't there? One of the harshest is life itself. If you let only life teach you its lessons, I think you could become a fairly unhappy person because this is a fallen world. God is not the only agent at work in, in the world. It, and it's terrible uh, to encounter people with that theology who believe that everything that happens in their life is somehow an act of God. That it is an effect of God's will. And if, if you're stuck there, I want to help you tonight. That's a lie. That's bad theology. In fact, that's poisonous theology. Because when you should be resisting the devil, you're simply going to believe that God is at work rather than your adversary. And you won't offer any resistance at all. So I want to spend time in the Word.
Jesus said that his word is truth. Now, he offered that in juxtaposition to verses, let's see, I think, let's start with, I think, verse 41 in the same uh, uh, John, the eighth chapter. We will get to the parable of the sower, I promise. I just want to take my time. Is, is that all right? I, I, I really felt compelled to share along these lines for the last several weeks and, and to continue along these lines. And I want to encourage you sometimes, and, and uh, if I say things in a fashion that may at times be offensive, up front, please, I apologize. Accept my apologies. I, they are sincere. Um, um, it may seem I'm being glib or flippant at times, and I may be at times. <laughs> um, um, but it's my intention to share something that makes such a difference in our lives. And uh, uh, so I want to encourage you to just, let's take this journey together. We'll take a, a few uh, weeks to do that. And I may repeat myself. In fact, I can assure you I will repeat myself because I've discovered that repetition is uh, one of the crucial tools in a teacher's toolbox. And that we will keep uh, uh, working through this and I will remind you of things uh, that I've said along the way. Um, Jesus explains that uh, truth exists alongside of lies. Uh, verse 41, you are doing the deeds of your father. They said to him, we were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and have come from God. For I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I am saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. Now, you'll want to remember that phrase. That will uh, be particularly important as we explore the parable of the sower. You cannot hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning, and he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature for, let's say this aloud together, he is a liar and the father of lies. What is it that Jesus frees us from through the truth? From the influence, from the power of Satan's lies. And they are many and varied. Let me give you a for instance when it comes to um, our behaviors. The book of Revelation describes Satan as the accuser of the brethren. Paul in um, uh, 2 Corinthians 5 announces that we are new creatures in Christ Jesus. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. That's a statement of fact. It's a statement of truth. If you've come to Christ, old things have passed away. You are literally a brand new creature. And Paul's advice to the church then is, in, in fact, it's interesting, uh, it, it, in the original text it says, let them be a new creation. 
Then he refers to us as ministers of reconciliation. Certainly we're reconciling a lost world to God, but within this context, we're reconciling people to God's definition of who they are. God's definition of themselves. If you have named the name of Christ, if you have received him by faith as Lord, you are that new creation Paul was speaking of. That is who you are. And Paul urged them not to narrowly define people according to their behaviors, but to remain in agreement with God's opinion about those people. What does that mean, practically? Well, let's say um, I go home with Don, and uh, I observe Don, and I can't even imagine Don doing this, but I observe Don get into a terrible argument with his wife. Have you done that, Don? <laughs> I observe Don get into a terrible argument with his wife, and he says some very harsh things to her. What has happened there? Has Don done something wrong? Y yes. Yes. But what has happened, technically speaking? Paul in Romans 7 explains that's not Don, that's sin in Don. It's the residue of the old man. It's the impact of that old sin nature. But Don is, in fact, a new creature. So how should I respond as his brother to that situation? Well, you can't neglect. You can't act as if nothing happened because something happened, right? So what do I say? Gee, Don, you're, you're quite a scoundrel. <laughs> um, uh, you're... You're, a, you're an ill-tempered man. You're, Don, you're an angry man. Now, it would appear to be true, wouldn't it? Well, I'm gonna, we're going to jump over to the Old Testament. Do you remember in Numbers, the 13th chapter, God sent spies uh, into the Promised Land. Moses dispatched them. They returned after several weeks, and they brought back, brought back evidence of the land's abundance. They said, look, here are grapes. The, the, the um, um, cluster of grapes was so large, it, it required two men to bear it on a staff between themselves. They said, it is a land that flows with milk and honey. However, there are also there giants and great walled cities, and they are more than we are. We'll be destroyed if we cross over into this promised land. Now, if you examine what they said closely, what becomes apparent is they were not exaggerating. There were giants. There were great walled cities. Jericho was among them. And there were more of them than there were of uh, uh, the Israelites who were proposing to cross over and go into that land and possess it. They didn't exaggerate. They certainly didn't lie. 
In fact, and they said, so we can't go. You would, you would probably judge them to be very prudent men who offered sage advice. Stay away unless you want to die. Caleb, however, saw the trend of uh, everyone's thinking and he said, no, 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 wait, 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 wait. We are well able to overcome them. Now what he said on its face might sound impulsive and reckless. He's in all kinds of denial. This kid could get us killed. But he wasn't in denial. And he didn't, he was not uh, denying the presence of challenge. He used the word overcome. We can overcome them. That language suggests there's conflict waiting for us. But because God is with us, we can emerge victoriously. What the other men said was perfectly reasonable and rational. But it reflected a horribly uh, earthbound perspective. Caleb was speaking from God's perspective. Well, the Bible calls it an evil report. And that entire generation failed to enter into the promised land. Now, that one, and remember, God, we read in Deuteronomy, he brought them out in order to bring them in, but that entire generation died on the wrong side of the River Jordan. That ought to completely blow out of the water, this idea, if God wants it to happen, it'll happen. Really? That doesn't appear to hold water when I read a verse of Scripture like that. Now you're shaking me up, Larry. I don't like this theology. I remember when I drove the car for the first time. In fact, I, this was many years ago. Anyways, uh, we were living in Melrose, uh, and um, my dad tossed me the keys. Of course, lots of unpaved roads out there. I was 12. He said, let's go for a drive. So I was like, okay, terrified because I realized he was serious. So I climbed in behind the wheel and I drove. I probably didn't drive more than 15 minutes. It was on unpaved roads. There were, no, there were no other automobiles anywhere near me. But when I pulled back into the driveway, I was drenched with perspiration. <laughs> it was terrifying, but exhilarating. And uh, so a few years went by and find, you know, I got my uh, license and started to drive. And when you first begin driving, it, it is a little uh, unnerving, isn't it? Because you realize, I, I, am, I am the captain of this four-ton piece of steel hurling down the highway <laughs> toward other people. And you think about all the things that could go wrong. And that responsibility weighs heavily on you. And I've bumped into people that just don't want to drive because of that. But as you grow accustomed to the responsibility and you understand you can manage it, then the possibilities that driving brings into view um, start to create a, a new sense of adventure and pleasure. This is exciting. I can, I can accept the responsibility because it promises 
to al allow me a great deal more freedom. I can go where I want to go, when I want to go. I'm not dependent upon someone driving me there. It's a little frightening at first to consider the possibility that God might will something for you, but it cannot happen unless you choose to believe God's promises. That the outcomes actually pivot on your choices. That's a little frightening. And I'm convinced one of the reasons we've embraced that other idea is because it does seem to relieve us of that responsibility. And if things go south, we go, well, how can I fight against that? It's the will of God after all. Look, and I'm with you. It's a little, how many of you say that's a little frightening to think that outcomes may pivot on my decisions? Is it genuinely? Yeah. It should scare the bejesus out of you. That's what Paul said. He said in, 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 in Hebrews 3.19, he said, so we see then they could not enter, into un, enter in because of their unbelief. Verse 1 of chapter 4, let us therefore fear. Lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. So when you shoulder that responsibility, sure, there's a little anxiety attached to it. You're not shouldering it alone. You're yoked with Jesus. He said, my burden is easy. Well, it's light. My yoke is easy. That's how I like my yoke too, over easy. Now, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. Here's the exciting thing, guys. Life's not a gamble anymore. You don't have to look to the future with fear and anxiety because you don't know how it's going to turn out. Equipped with God's promises, you can know, hey, the pathway of the righteous, as the psalmist declared, grows brighter and brighter till the fullness of day. Yes, there will be challenges along the way, but like Caleb, we say we are well able to overcome them. We're not going to ignore them. We're not going to deny that they exist, but we are going to overcome them. When the adversary strikes, as he's certain to, we will respond with the power of God. It's conveyed to us through his promises, and we will overcome them. God will in, enjoy in that moment the opportunity to glorify himself, which is what Paul wrote in Corinthians. Now, thanks be unto God, in 2 Corinthians 2.14, who always causes us to triumph. Now that word always has a unique meaning in the original text. It means always. Which always causes us to triumph. Always causes us to triumph. And in that triumph, to glorify God. If you, if you hear this and you're hearing maybe for the first time and, and it causes you concern, some anxiety, I understand entirely. I really do. More importantly, Jesus does. And he sent us the comforter, the Holy Spirit. Just ask God, Lord, this is a, a little frightening. It's exciting. First of all, is that guy, is he off base? I mean, is he, is he nuts? Is, that, is he a heretic? Is he teaching something that's just not biblical? Maybe that's why I'm responding with fear. That's the Spirit of God inside me telling, steer clear of this fellow in black. <laughs> well, it may be. 
uh, you're obliged, as I'm obliged, to come to hear the Word of God taught with an open mind. I'm to be like the believers in Berea who came ready to hear the Word but then returned to index what they heard against this metric. Does it harmonize with this? If it does, then I need to accommodate it in my life and begin to practice it. If it doesn't, I dispense with it and I warn other people that that may be error over there. So what I want to ask you, don't accept it because I'm saying it. I've spent a lot of years studying it. I'm deeply sincere in what I'm sharing with you, but I could be sincerely wrong. So you have the obligation of listening with an open mind and then returning to Scripture. I'm, I'm offering a lot, of, a lot of verses as I share. Make sure I've contextualized them properly. Go back and study it. And if you find some error, come back and tell me about it. I, I'll make an adjustment. But, I'm, but I'm, I'm fairly convinced at this point in my life that this is what God's Word says. So I want to encourage you to examine this. And if you're a little frightened about the idea that... So you're saying that my response to challenge may be determinative? that outcomes may be hinged to that. And I can't simply sit back and say, if it's God's will, it will happen. If it isn't, it won't. That frightens me a little. It concerns me. But if it's true, I need to catch up with that truth. And I need to begin to uh, live my life reflective of that. So, Again, yeah, it's a little frightening, but it's awfully exciting. It means we get to uh, advance into this promised land to receive God's promises, appropriate them in the here and now, and see them fulfilled in our lives. Okay, so let's go to Mark, the fourth chapter. And we'll just start it, and then we'll have to stop. But I told you I'm not going to rush through this. And, and look, guys, if you have, and we may have, I don't know yet, uh, I, I have to actually speak with Father Ron and, and, and with Jackie and Miriam and see if it's appropriate for this setting. But one night we might have just a little Q&A session if you have questions. Um, we might do that and uh, explore some of these things together. Uh, and certainly after, after prayer, you know, if you want to just uh, hang around and say, Larry, I've got a, a couple of questions. I'm, I'm more than happy to stay and, and talk through that. Or if you want to call me or send an email, uh, that's fine as well. All right, Mark, the fourth chapter. The parable of the sower. Um, extraordinary parable. Um, and Jesus hints in verse 13, he says, Do you not understand this parable? How will you understand all the parables? This suggests that the keys that Jesus provides for us in this parable can actually, um, they're transferable. They are keys which unlock truth for us throughout the Word of God. Um, 
Jesus says again and again, and he says it in this parable, he that hath ears to hear, let him hear. Now clearly he's not talking about these appendages. He, he's not talking about uh, sound waves striking your auditory nerves and, you know, so that you can hear words that are being spoken. He's talking about his spirit speaking to a heart open to his voice. And that's really the group that Jesus was, that's the only group that Jesus was talking to. It's the only group I'm talking to. Tonight, uh, there are people that are here listening, and then there are people that are hearing. That's really the group of people I'm speaking with. When I've taught on grace in the past, did we finish my little example, or did we leave you as an angry man? I just realized that. That's what happens when you wander away from your notes. We left you as an angry man, Donna. I'm so sorry for that. The point of that was we would stay in agreement with what God says about Don, not the accuser of the brethren. We'll deal with that later on in, in, during this study. We'll get back to that. Um, I distracted myself. That's unique. Um, where was I, actually? Yeah, I've got that. Oh, hearing, hearing. Um, we are, do you have a heart prepared and ready to hear what God the Holy Spirit is speaking to you? That's the group of people I'm speaking to tonight. When I teach on grace, that, that's where I was. Uh, so I've had some people say, well, aren't you slightly concerned that some people may uh, take that as license and, and live their lives uh, recklessly? No. I mean, we do have an obligation to uh, hew a straight line. Paul said in, in Romans 7, should we, uh, should we sin that grace may abound? God forbid. And then he continued on with uh, the idea that it's, it's not uh, him that was sinning, but sin in him. So I'm not really concerned about that because when I teach on grace, you know who I'm speaking to? People who have a heart after God. I'm not speaking to those who do not have a heart after God. Those who have a heart after God want to lead their lives in a fashion pleasing unto Him. They don't want to serve themselves. They want to serve God and others. That's who I'm speaking to. I'm not speaking to the others. I'm not speaking to people who do not have a heart after God. That's not saying I don't care about them. That's simply saying my obligation is to address those who have ears to hear and to speak the word uh, that can transform their lives. Uh, Jesus is, is simply saying here that I'm going to show you something that will allow you to hear God's word in a fashion that causes truth to come alive to you. It will not remain hidden. It won't remain obscure. It's going to come alive in you and its power is going to be unleashed in you and through you. Verse 14. This is, this is really all we're, we're, we're not going to get beyond this uh, first two verses and I'm, I'm going to need to stop. The sower sows what? The Word. Let's say that. The sower sows the Word. So what's, what, 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 what is one of the primary subjects? of this parable? It's the Word. The sower 
sows the word. These are the one beside the road where the word is sown, and when they hear, immediately Satan comes and takes away the word which was sown in them. Remember that adversary we were talking about? Now you've taken a real risk tonight because you've come and gathered in a place where you are certain to hear the word. So guess what? Who's coming right away to steal it away? Yeah, Satan's coming immediately to steal away. And we'll see, initially he does it through argument. If that doesn't work, uh, he escalates his, uh, um, his attack. Um, nothing to be frightened of, but it is important to know that when you hear the word, Satan comes immediately. Why? We've essentially, I've essentially explained to you why he comes immediately throughout this message. Why is he coming to steal away the word? Because that terrifies him. If you know the truth, he has lost his edge over you. His ability to influence you through his lies. His abilities to hold you captive through his lies has just been lost. He is beaten in the lives of every man and woman who hears and believes the truth. He wants to steal that away as soon as he possibly can. That's our adversary. Powerless. Powerless without his lies. That's his stock and trade. Lies. He is a confidence man. A scam artist. I'm not suggesting he's without strength. Jesus said he's a strong man. But his strength can only find recourse in our lives and in our circumstance through his lies believed. And that's really what fear is. It's believing a lie. Faith is believing the truth. Fear is believing a lie. That's why Jesus said to the disciples, you remember they were heading out across the sea? He fell asleep in the back of the ship. Storm blew up. They, they finally woke him up and said, hey, we're about to die. Jesus calmed the seas. Not because they were about to die. They weren't. They would have gone through that storm. Jesus was in the boat and said, we're going to the other side. Immediately upon calming the water and the waves, he turned to the disciples and he asked an important question of them, and it's one we should think through ourselves. Why are you afraid? How is it that you have no faith? Now, if you're in that situation and he says to you, why are you afraid? You're like, this is a joke, right? Why am I afraid? Let me see. Oh yeah, we were about to drown. The boat was sinking. It seemed like a fairly good reason to be frightened. Are you kidding me? Why was I afraid? No, nobody did that, nor would I. <laughs> I'd be like, yeah, yeah, it's dumb. I know, I have no idea why I did that. But it's an important question. Why were you afraid? 
I want to ask you, when you're afraid, why are you afraid? Huh? Why are you afraid? Well, true, but why are you, think about it. When, when you become fearful, what, what's, what's transpiring? You fear loss. You fear harm. You, you feel under threat. It's a very natural response, isn't it? You fear loss on some level. Why do we believe? Why do we have faith? Because we believe what? We believe the truth. Guys, that's it. That's why Jesus sows the word. This is where it all begins and ends. It's with the truth. Why do we have faith? Because we believe the truth. Now, there's this Holy Spirit that comes. It's his convicting and convincing power that makes it stick. It's not a purely psychological phenomenon. In fact, it's a more spiritual uh, phenomenon than it is a psychological phenomenon, but it certainly has an intellectual dimension. But uh, we, we have faith because we believe the truth. We have fear because we believe a lie. A lie that says what? You're about to suffer loss. You're about to, you're about, on some level, you're about to suffer loss. So it's an important question Jesus is asking them. In other words, he's saying, guys, your choice determines outcome. Last week, we were in, when, when the messenger came to Jairus and said, your little girl's dead. In the King James Version of Mark, it says, as soon as Jesus heard the words which were spoken, he said to Jairus, don't begin being afraid, keep believing. There's a pivotal moment. He knew that Jairus was about to fashion the outcome by either becoming afraid or continuing to believe. So Satan is coming to steal away the word. That is the precious jewel that thief is after because it threatens his ability to continue to rule and dominate your life and circumstances. Let's go ahead and pray. We'll, we'll close up there. Father, we're um, grateful that uh, you have given us your word and we're grateful that you've given us your Holy Spirit to teach us your word. And I pray that as, as um, each of us takes time to think through what's been shared here tonight, as we take the time to read carefully your word to determine how accurately this has been shared tonight, that we can rely on you to guide us in that effort. And I do pray, Lord, for all of us Increase our hunger for your word. Increase our hunger for your word. That we might hunger after it as we do for natural food. And I pray, open our understanding as we read your word. Let it come to life. We ask this sincerely. In Jesus' name, amen.